Well, good morning. Welcome again to TCC. So glad to see you. Welcome to August, too. Yee, so sticky out there. Humid. Like that summer, right? Summertime and the Olympics have started, right? Do you like those Olympics? I like to watch them. I like to watch the sport. But this week, the greatest sporting stunt that I saw wasn't news from Rio. was actually a story out of California. Maybe you saw it where this skydiver attempted to break the world skydiving record from 25,000 feet with no parachute. You see that story? Yeah, I heard about it, so I, I thought, gosh, maybe a little train wreck mentality. But nonetheless, I was like, what in the world is this guy doing? What a daredevil. Well, rest assured, this guy was no uh, bozo. This guy's name was Luke Akins, and Luke coaches for a living. He uh, coaches Navy SEALs on how to jump. He's had over 18,000 jumps in the last 20 years. <clears throat> so he's no bozo. He knows what he's doing. But still, I thought, how in the world are you going to do that from 25,000 feet? I can think of a few problems, right? First off, the landing. This isn't gymnastics where you got to stick it, right? There's going to be a problem there without a parachute. And then the drop, you can't breathe at 25,000 feet. That's why in commercial airliners, they go through that whole spill. There's an oxygen mask that pops down for you. And then the plane is moving as he's falling out of it. If he drops over the target, it's going to keep him moving. He's going to miss the target. So he's going to have to drop before he gets to the target, right? Uh, how in the world is he going to hit that target that he's aiming for down there? I had all these questions. So I went to CNN and watched the video, and I saw he had some help. That's his secret. He's still a great diver. He broke the record. He didn't die, but he had some help. How did he breathe? He had this portable oxygen mask that he jumped out of the plane with, and when he got so far down, he didn't need any more, and he just tossed it, right? How did he locate the target? Well, it turns out he had GPS system on his suit, and there was lights down there highlighting where he was supposed to land, so that helped him kind of steer himself by maneuvering his body to actually hit the target, but it's still the landing, right? He didn't have a hidden chute. If you don't have a parachute and you're going to land, how do you do it? You need a giant circus net. So that's what this guy had. Didn't take anything away in my eyes from the stunt, because otherwise he'd be dead, right? But he hit this net, and he just boosh, and bounces back up, and he's alive. And I was fascinated by that stunt this week. But as I was watching it and reading Daniel, I was thinking, man, at some time in everybody's life, we're all going to be in a free fall of sorts, where things feel out of control, just like in that video. Maybe it's your marriage. Your marriage is spinning wheels in the wrong direction. It feels like it's slipping through your fingertips. Maybe it's the guilt you feel over past decisions. They stalk you like a lioness in tall grass. Or maybe it's the next six months. You know you're going to be living more off of your credit card account and your checking account because the latter is in the red. Right? You're troubled by your financial freefall. Or maybe you like Olympian Michael Phelps. It was recently, I read an article after the 2012 Olympics in London. Michael Phelps said he had it all. Famous, got millions of dollars in endorsements. Young guy, athlete, he had everything, but he said he didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know the meaning of it all. And maybe that's your freefall. 
today. Life is full of these things. In fact, you might be 10,000 feet into your free fall this morning. And I pray that you see God has something for you here. And some of the scariest things that you'll encounter in life have a couple of components. One of the most scary things in life is encountering something that you don't understand. You can't figure it out. Another component is encountering something that's out of your control. Right? Take this year's election, right? Coming up in November. Nobody can figure that out. You look at all the predictions from just two years ago, no one foresaw who would be the candidate. No one knows what's going to happen. So it's scary for some people what's going to happen. Or maybe it's your health, right? Turns out the Zika virus isn't just in Rio, right? It's in Florida now. If you're a pregnant woman, that's a game changer. All kinds of health concerns are lurking, and in the end, we can't control what happens to our bodies. Well, thankfully, none of these issues are new. They've been around for thousands of years. The same fears, trembling when we can't explain what's happening, or anxiousness when we realize things are spinning out of control. And Today in the scriptures, we'll see a story from 600 B.C. where the same issues come up. As we've been reading through Daniel in a sermon series entitled No Lasting City, Hoping in God's Eternal Triumph. As we read through chapter 2 today, I'm going to point out a couple of hopeful things, but I want, what I want you to zero in on is the fact that God will meet us when we are confused about our life, and God will meet us when things are out of control. Because we will find out that he is superior in his wisdom, and he's superior in his government. So let's take a look at the text. First, we see the king's free fall here, in verses 1 through 16. Read with me in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king, king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, this king Nebuchadnezzar was a tortured soul, haunted by his own nightmares, chomped down on his sleep like a pit bull, wouldn't let go of him. Night after night after night, he was tortured by these nightmares. And that's meant to be surprising to you if you've been reading chapter 1 of Daniel, because here in verse 1, we have a contrast to what we had in chapter 1, verse 1. Remember Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 1, verse 1? He was the guy who stormed with his army into Jerusalem and grounded and pounded them into submission. He was the powerhouse king of the ancient world. Not too long before the text was written, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and his empire had actually taken over the New York City of the ancient world, the city of Nineveh, the central, most thriving city. He had come in, uh, and his army in Babylon had captured it. And now he basically ruled all of the known world there. He backed up Egypt. He'd taken over Damascus, Tyre, all of these regions were now coming to him and offering him tribute. He was the supreme ruler of the world, and yet he was crippled over something he could not control, which was his own sleep and his own nightmares. And you might ask, why did these dreams bother him so much? Well, we need to understand the context a little bit. First off, we know that Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely religious fella. Uh, not Christian religion, but pagan religion. He had a bunch of 
false gods in the Babylonian society that he would worship. Gods like Nebo, the uh, moon god, or Baal, or Marduk. In fact, if you, uh, what still survives today is an actual inscription from Nebuchadnezzar's coronation. You can actually go find that and read it. And if you read it, during his coronation speech, Nebuchadnezzar gives all praise to the everlasting god Marduk. And he spends a lot of time in his opening political speech talking about the greatness of this false god Marduk. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because Nebuchadnezzar knew that gods, even these false gods, would communicate to people through dreams. Now, in the Old Testament, we see that the one true living God works through dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had a sense of that, but he had the wrong focal point. He thought the gods were trying to tell him something every night, and he couldn't get past it because he couldn't understand what it was. And what does he to do? Well, he first calls on the prevailing wisdom of the age. You can see that in verse 2, if you look with me. Verse 2 says this, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Right? So he calls in all of his advisors. Who in the world were these sorcerers, enchanters, people? Well, they were probably broken up into a couple of groups. The first group was legit. God, it appears, has given some people the ability to see some of the mysteries of the Neverworld. Think about the witch of Endor. We have that story with King Saul in the Bible where somehow, though inconsistent and incomplete, some people can see some things and this is what uh, his advisors would do. So he would call on them and the other set of the people probably just played the odds, right? You've seen this uh, street magician guy named David Blaine. You've seen him before, right? He has a trick where he just plays the odds with numbers, he'll say, pick a number between 50 and 100, and it'll be a two-digit number, and make sure the numbers aren't the same, and make sure they're both even. And then he'll ask somebody, what number did you think of? And by a weird statistical fluke, most people will think of the number 68. Maybe you just did. Well, what David Blaine will do, David Blaine will hold up a number, and it'll say 68, and everybody will be, wow, you're so smart. That's the kind of cons or odd playing that these guys would do. But they had a problem. When the king came to them and said, uh, you've got to help me out, he didn't even tell them the dream. Right? He said, I had a dream last night, and I want you to tell me what the dream was and interpret it. So they had nothing to play the odds with. right? They had nothing to go on, and so they were stumped. And you don't want the ruler of all the world stumped when your job is to please them. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He issues a decree, kill everybody, kill all the wise people. If you can't figure it out, you're no good to me. I will execute all of you. And that was his prerogative as the great king. And so that's what he set out to do. So you have a dramatic pause here in the story. And during this pause, it's a good time to ask yourself. If you want to get something out of the scriptures today, ask yourself what haunts you. Put yourself into the story. Ask yourself what is haunting you. Maybe it's your loneliness, right? Maybe you're just tired of spending another weekend alone. Or maybe even in a crowd or in your marriage, you still feel like someone doesn't understand you fully. And you don't know why that is, and you sure can't control it. Maybe it's your past. You know, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, has been called the best-known psychiatric disease of this decade. Basically, it's Essentially, identify something that's happened in your past that keeps 
coming back, rushing into your emotional life, and it won't go away. It's a grip on your emotions like a vice. Some of us, maybe you're haunted by success. Maybe you saw your parents work hard their whole life for the American dream. And by the time you're 30, you had all of that. You had a nice home. You were comfortable. You're there in your job where you want to be. You had a family, and you're wondering, is this all there is? What's the purpose here? Some can be haunted by success. And then some are just haunted by guilt before God. I talked to a senior citizen not too long ago, and he told me, you know, I've I've stopped worrying about everything, and now I worry about only one thing, and that's my guilt before the one true living God. I need forgiveness. Some of you are haunted by that. The fact is, like Nebuchadnezzar, we are all haunted at some time by problems we can't solve, demons we can't control. And in part, that haunting comes from a lack of wisdom. If we're honest, there's a lot of things in life we can figure out. We can figure out how to get a job. We can figure out how to do family to a certain extent. But we're limited because we are finite in our wisdom. One of the main points of the story today is there is someone superior to you in wisdom so that when you need help, you can call out to this superior God. If we return to the story in chapter 2, we'll notice that God is superior in wisdom. So thus far in chapter 2, the heroes that were introduced in chapter 1 haven't showed up. Besides God, we haven't seen Daniel or his friends that dominated chapter 1. But here they come, and what we find out is Daniel and his buddies are now lumped in with all of the wise men. He must have risen to a point of power and of wisdom and reputation in the kingdom, so much so that when the king says, I'm getting rid of all the wise people, I'm including you, Daniel, and all your compadres. So Daniel is now faced with something he cannot control and something he does not understand, which is this dream and this death sentence. And you're supposed to contrast, and you're reading the story, you're supposed to contrast Nebuchadnezzar's reaction of rage and killing and murder to Daniel's reaction. Look what he does here in verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, that's Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, They were his companions. And he told them this. He said, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. That's the dream. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. What happened? That night God gave him a vision. And he told him both the dream, its content, and what it meant. And at this point, here's a Bible story reading tip for you. Anytime you're reading a story in the Old Testament, in the Bible, a narrative, and you see there in your text an indention where it looks like there's a poetry going on, uh, depending on how your Bible is set up. Mine has an indention. Or there's a song or a psalm. If you find that in the middle of a story, that's where the meaning of the story is often located. And we find that in verse 20. You read with me. Look for the main theme of the story today. You'll find it in verse 20. And following, where we read, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. That's the point of the Bible. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Now, here's the point of the passage. To whom belongs wisdom and might. That's the wisdom. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. That's the control. 
And we'll get to that in a minute. But right now, the wisdom part comes to the forefront because Daniel says he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Did you see the theme coming up over and over and over again in the text? You are the God of wisdom. Wisdom, you made known to me. You are the God of wisdom. That's the point of the story today. You can actually tell that we were designed to yearn for superior wisdom because of some of the stories we like. You ever hear, hear stories where one guy just turns out to be the fool in the story and the other guy kind of trumps him with his knowledge and you're kind of like, ha ha, I like, I like seeing that fool get, get his. For instance, uh, there's a story, old story of Steve Jobs when he was a young man first starting out. He worked the night shift at Atari and he was trying to sell his very first Apple One. Right? So he goes to the head of the Atari company, Steve Bushnell, and he says, hey, uh, for $50,000, you can come in to my brand new corporation here and I'll give you one-third stock. And Steve Bushnell says, no, I'm going to work on Pong for a while. That's, that's the latest thing. He turns down the stock that would later be worth billions of dollars, right? You, you attract those toys, you're like, ha, 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 ha. Or there's a famous general <clears throat> uh, from World War I. His name was Ferdinand Falk. He was the supreme Allied commander at the end of World War I. He led all the Allied forces. And he was asked one time about airplanes, and he said, airplanes, they're interesting to toys, but they'll never be of any military use. And you look at that, ha-ha, the next war was won by airplanes. Or this guy named Fred Smith. Fred Smith was a student at Yale Business School, and he had a test where he was supposed to write a proposal for a new business, and so he wrote up a proposal about a business that would... Uh, get paper to you really quickly. And his professor gave him a C, and he wrote on the paper, that could never happen. And he gave him a bad grade. And of course, later, Fred Smith went on to found FedEx. And you hear those stories, and you're like, ha-ha, he has superior wisdom than you, and you're attracted to it, right? It's because we were designed to yearn for wisdom beyond ourselves. And in the text today, Daniel has been granted a superior wisdom from outside himself. So later, we see in the story, Daniel's going to come to the king and tell him about the dream. We see that in verse 27, if you want to look there. He stands before the king, and he says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers, none of, them, none of them can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Today, that's what I want you to trust in. Trust that our God is superior in wisdom. He knows what you do not know. And our role is to trust in him. Now look back with me at verse 22, because I want to show you something cool. Because when I say God is superior in wisdom, I don't mean to say in a far-off kind of aloof way. I mean to say he's superior in wisdom in a walked-in-your-shoes kind of way. And you can see hints of that in verse 22, at the end of it, 22b, if you read with me, you'll see the phrase, God, he knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. Does that sound familiar? If you've read the Old Testament, there are several passages where light 
refers to the coming Messiah. And then famously in John chapter 1, in the prologue, John writes this. He says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So John presents Jesus of Nazareth as the true light that shines over and against all spiritual blindness and darkness and ignorance. This world in which we live is pictured as being dark, ruled by Satan to a certain extent, but the darkness will not overcome the light of Jesus Christ. Later, in fact, in John, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Apostle Paul also picked this up. Jesus is the light, the revelation of God in 1 Corinthians 1. In a couple places, verse 24 and verse 30, he calls Jesus the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom from God, according to the Apostle Paul. And what does it mean for Christ to be the wisdom of God? Here's a definition. R.C. Sproul writes this. He defines wisdom as this. He says, wisdom is the ability to see reality as God does, enabling people to apply knowledge in a life that pleases the Creator and creates godly abundance. We're told in Colossians 2.3 that everything we need to know about the Father and how to properly interpret reality and live to His glory is accessible to all believers in His Son. Commentator Matthew Henry says, the treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us, but for us in Christ Jesus. I have another quote from another pastor. This one's really long, so... Take your breath. You're not used to hearing long quotes, but you can do it. N.T. Wright says this. It's a long one, but I think it's good and juicy, so I want you to hear it. He says this in talking profoundly about the wisdom of God. He said, it is when we stand at the foot of the cross that we discover the true identity of Lady Wisdom, calling to the simple to turn aside and to enter and to eat her bread and to drink her wine. The Messiah is the soil that nourishes us and makes us what we are. And particularly, it is in him that the dark theme of suffering comes to full expression. Part of the point of the book of Job is that we don't understand, and we never will in this life, how all of that suffering makes sense. But part of the point of Paul's gospel of the crucified Messiah is that this unfathomable act of love, that's the crucifixion, is where the sense is to be found. And even the folly of Solomon comes to focus at this point. Because part of God's wager in the Old Testament is that he chooses to act in and through the people of Israel, knowing that because they too are composed of sinful human beings, they're going to get it wrong. And that he will come himself in the person of his own son, the true king, the man after his own heart, to take upon himself the long-term results of Israel's folly, as well as the long-term outworking of Israel's royal wisdom. And we find in the ancient biblical record itself the same problem of evil that we can see in the created order today. But as we do so, we discover that it too is held firmly within the mystery of Christ and Him crucified. To quote the hymn, praise to the holiest in the height. O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. Loving wisdom, another name for our beloved Jesus. I hope you caught the gospel 
there. Our chief problem is our sin and shame. And in God's ultimate wisdom, He sent Jesus to deal with this problem. The conundrum of our unrighteousness before God is solved with the righteousness of Jesus because He can both judge our sin and make us holy with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. And we all have darknesses that confuse us, that haunt us. It's scary because we don't understand it. Our only hope today is that Jesus Christ knows what is in the darkness because He's been there too. At the cross, He entered into your pain and suffering and your darkness, and He willfully took it on Himself. When it comes to your own pain, God's agenda isn't just telling you what's going to happen or giving you the reason for your pain. His role is to prove Himself the loving rescuer. Your portion is going to be to trust that He is working in and through you to make you like Jesus and to show Himself as superior to all other gods. And He does that in this text. The Apostle Paul is a wonderful example of this. By the way, a lot of us forget that in AD 57, the Apostle Paul, his career was one of a church planter, and he was pretty successful. And he was hanging out in a mega city, an urban center of Corinth. He was doing pretty well. Maybe even wore skinny jeans. I don't know. But he was on a roll. He was headed to Rome. He was headed to Spain. And he decided to take a detour to Jerusalem. Why would he go to Jerusalem? Because he knew the wisdom of God's heart was justice and mercy for the poor, and there was a poor church there. So he gathered money, took a break from his church planting job, traveled a thousand miles by boat to Jerusalem, and he landed there. On his way, both preachers, pastors, prophets, all grabbed him and said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Those people hate you there. The Jews hate you. They think you're a traitor. They will arrest you if you arrive in Jerusalem. Don't wreck your career. Paul said, no, my heart is God's heart. The wisdom of God is telling me to go seek justice and mercy. And so he does it in Jerusalem and he gets arrested. The last five years of his life are spent in prison because he's following this wisdom of God. And when he gets into prison, he's able to say to the church at Philippi, I, I found the secret to contentment. Whether it's feasting or fasting, I'm low, I'm high, I found it. And that is trusting in wisdom himself, Jesus Christ crucified. Paul knew that Jesus was our only hope. And so he was able to turn to him. I pray that we will as well. Another point we see in the text is that God, your God is superior in government. Your God is superior in and government. Let's jump back into the story. After cluing the king in, Daniel has said, hey, God gave me the answer to the dream. I know what it is. Daniel's going to share what it is to him. You can see that in verse 31. What was this dream that was keeping Nebuchadnezzar up? Rattling the brain of the ruler of the, the world at that time. You see it in verse 31. He said, you saw, O king, and behold, there was a great image, this image mighty in Nebuchadnezzar, Seating brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Nothing would stand in the world in front of the king and scare him. But this image did. The head of this image was of fine gold, and it had a chest of arms of silver. 
its middle and its thighs of bronze. It had legs of iron, feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you look, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, the whole image, all together were broken in pieces. And it became like shaft of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. I know some of you guys are visual learners. I try to get a picture here of what one artist said it might have looked like. There it is. Uh, we don't know what it looked like exactly, but this is what it could have looked like. An image of a man with gold on top. You see his arms are silver. Next, his middle part. Uh, there's bronze, and you get down to iron and clay at the bottom. And the blue thing that's coming like a meteor, that's a stone that's coming, smashing the whole thing. And that was the vision that he saw over and over and over again. It's driving him batty. But what did it mean? Well, part of understanding what it meant was understanding Daniel as a whole. The whole structure of the book can kind of give us some clues to what this vision is pointing at. I tried to put up an outline here of the structure of Daniel. You can see there, uh, remember how the Bible authors sometimes write, they'll put the meat in the middle of the sandwich, so to speak, or the tofu in the middle of the pita bread, if that's your choice. <laughs> The good stuff, the meaning is in the middle of the passage or in the middle of the book, right? So if you look at the structure of Daniel, the first chapter and chapters 10 through 12 at the end are both about exile. Daniel was exiled. He has a vision of the exile. Then chapter 2 is parallel about Nebuchadnezzar's vision, where we're at today. It's parallel with Daniel's vision in chapter 7 through 9. Chapter 3 has a deliverance from the furnace. It's parallel to chapter 6, deliverance from the lion's den. And then right in the middle, in chapter 4 and 5, the meat of the book, you have Nebuchadnezzar humbled, he goes crazy, and Belshazzar is also humbled, he's taken over. You have salvation of God's people through judgment. That's going to be one of the main themes of not only the Bible itself, but particularly of Daniel. God saves his people, but he does it through judgment. And when we know that, we can understand better the meaning of this vision. So he's given the content of the vision, some kind of crazy image with a stone. Now he's going to explain it, starting in verse 38. And by the way, this was given to a Gentile, right? This vision of who God is and what it means is given to someone who's not a Jew. God always had a plan to show himself to all peoples, not just the Jewish people. Verse 38, what does it mean? Daniel said, King, you are the head of gold. That'd be pretty good news, right? You are the golden head. Now, another kingdom inferior to you right there, that's good news for him, right? Another kingdom's going to come, and it's worse than he is. He's still the best. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there'll be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
As you saw, the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron doesn't mix with clay. Verse 44, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it will stand forever. Just as you saw that that stone was cut from a mountain with no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. So Daniel gives a lot of detail here. And sometimes like prophecies are, visions are, they're hard to uh, explain, but we can get a straightforward reading of what it at least means. He explains that the different metals you saw on the image stand for different kingdoms of the world that are going to come. Some of you don't think in pictures, you think in charts. So I try to get a chart to put up here that might help you kind of understand what he's talking about here. There it is. Sorry it's so dark, but um, this is from the ESV Study Bible. So what Daniel explains is there's a head of goat, and looking back through history, we now have the advantage to see what kingdoms came after Babylon. The head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonian kingdom ruled everything. After that in time, the chest and arms of silver represent the Medo-Persian empire who came in afterwards, full of Kurds, by the way, which we're going to go and see and minister among an unreached people group. The middle and thighs of bronze probably represented the Greek empire. Legs of iron, feet of iron and clay represented the Roman empire. And then the stone that comes in that is the stone of the messianic kingdom headed by Jesus Christ himself. So a very straightforward reading of this vision shares with us that the kingdom of God is coming and it will crush all other kingdoms because it's superior. So I've been thinking as I was reading through Daniel, what would a vision be like today maybe if God wanted to tell somebody that they're about to be overcome by something superior, right? So I'm thinking about that, and I'm watching the Olympics, and I think to myself, well, what if today Nebuchadnezzar, instead of being a king, was a great athlete, right? And he's a great swimmer, and he's at the Olympics, and before the Olympics, he gets in a vision over and over and over again, in a dream, and he can't shake it. What would that be like? So I found a picture here. This is not of the Olympics, but it is of swimming at the World Championships last year. So think if you're a Nebuchadnezzar and you're a swimmer, remember how swimming works. They're all swimming from the right to the left across the pool. And Nebuchadnezzar would be this white bubble man. Can't see him good, but he's, he's ahead of all these other guys. God could be showing him this and saying, hey, you're better than some other guys who are behind you. But then if you look out ahead, this line is the world record. You're not quite as good as the world record. And then if you look to the left of that, you'll see U.S. swimmer Katie Ledecky, who's killing it. Teenage world record holder in this race shatters the world record. Now imagine Nebuchadnezzar seeing that. He would get the sense. Oh yeah, I'm back here. World record is here. And that's where the champion swimmer is. Something far superior than me is coming down the pipe. That was the meaning of this vision given to Nebuchadnezzar. You are about to encounter something far superior than you ever dreamed. 
And how do we know that the kingdom of God has already started, that it's come? Well, there's some imagery here that's key. We don't have time to talk about all of it. There's imagery of a mountain. But I want you to key in on the image of a stone, the stone that is rolling, cut not by a human hand. That means it's cut by the hand of God. It's not made by human. It's made, it's cut by the hand of God. Genesis 49, all throughout the Old Testament, we have hints of what this stone means, what the stone symbolizes. Genesis 49, 24, we hear that the coming one from Jacob is called the stone of Israel. Right? Psalm 118, you may have read that before. In it, the psalmist exalts the persistent love of God. He refers to Israel as the stone that the builders rejected, right? Because Israel was cast out by some other countries. And later the prophet Isaiah will pick up this image of the stone and he will pour all kinds of messianic meaning into it. In chapter 8, he mentions a rock of offense in his prophecy. And in chapter 28, Isaiah says prophetically, he who believes in the stone will not be disturbed. And then finally, in Luke 20, we see the story of how Jesus gathers up all of these threads of Old Testament meanings about the stone and he puts them into himself when he tells the story to some unbelievers present. Listen to the story Jesus tells in Luke 20, verses 9 through 18. Jesus said, there was a man and he planted a vineyard and he lent out the tenants and they went into another country for a long while. So man took out on vacation after he lent out his vineyard. And when the time came, the man sent a servant to those tenants. So they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. So they were supposed to give him a cut of the profits, right? But the tenants beat the servant, and they sent him away empty-handed. Verse 11, so the master sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, and so he sent a third servant. And this one they also wounded and they cast out. It's a bad story so far. So the owner of the vineyard says, all right, I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son, and perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, hey, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance of this field will all be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Everybody heard this story and they stood around. They said, ah, surely not. No. And then Jesus looked directly at them. And he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's pointing to himself now. Verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. So Jesus reveals that through his cross and the resurrection comes the everlasting kingdom. Jesus was the one in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, not made out of human hands. He's the rock of ages. And we're told in this text that salvation for God's people comes through the judgment of world powers. Be it North Korea or Iran or the United States, God is going to come in judgment. And the cross of Christ allows God 
to judge justly and to be himself the justifier of all of his people. Our evil will be judged in Christ's death, and through it, we will be saved. And here's a couple of responses from this text. You see the vision, you see the interpretation. There's one coming who's going to crush, he's going to judge all rulers, he's going to be a superior government. Here's a couple of responses. First, the message of the New Testament is clear. We will either be built into this coming stone or we'll be crushed by it. You can either abide in the living Christ, seek Him as your chiefest pleasure, where all the joys of God are found forevermore, or you'll reject Him. And you will be judged for your rebellion against the one true living God. It's like uh, Pastor David Platt recently said in a recent sermon. He said, you don't make Jesus Lord. Just as the grass is green outside, whether you believe it or not, Jesus is Lord, the absolute authority, sovereign ruler, majestic king over your life, whether you believe it or not. The stone is coming, and I pray you yield joyfully to him. Because we're all going to yield, like, this, like the statue that got crushed. We'll all yield, either joyfully or through judgment. I pray that you will joyfully yield and be built into the living stone. Secondly, we can respond to this text by trusting that God's government is superior. God's government is superior. I was so happy last week when Eric preached and he mentioned the theme of God's ruling, of God's sovereignty, because it's so prevalent in Daniel. I remember when I was a young, many years ago, young college kid, Okay, young college punk, and I was talking to a campus Christian leader. He was with RUF, Reform University Fellowship. He was trying to straighten me out, and I would have these conversations. And remember what was going on way back early, mid-90s? We had a Rwandan genocide, right? It was awful. We had Waco, all this crazy stuff, a raid in Waco, Texas. We had riots in L.A. because of the Rodney King verdict. I was looking at all this turmoil going on, and college kid, I asked this leader, I said, leader, how can you say that God is governing and ruling in a very good way? From my vantage point, things have gone straight bananas. How can you say God is ruling over this? And he looked at me, this is why he's a good leader, and he said wisely, calmly, lovingly, he said, I believe in God's good government because I've been reading Daniel. And he's right. Few places in the entire Word of God have God telling us in visions, in stories, in different ways that God is in control. He's cleaning up this messy closet. He's arranging things. He's redecorating. He's upgrading. He's new creating. God can take paneling from the 60s and renew it with timber, right? We have that right outside in our foyer. God can do these things. He's a renewing God. And that's the lesson that we are to learn. What he's doing, what he's stirring, what he's making right now is for good, sound purposes. It's superior than everything else in the world, your own government of your own heart, and all the mechanisms of all the world governments. 
the current political party of choice won't have the final say. Look, your vote in November, it matters, but let's be serious. Only God sets up kings and brings them down. You can trust that his government is superior. And today I pray that you take comfort in his superior wisdom and his superior government. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray that you would come to your people and grant us comfort and boldness hand in hand because of your superior wisdom as seen in Jesus Christ through the person in his holy life and in his death and resurrection, we see wisdom. And also through your good government, all of what we think is real right now and lasting and permanent will come crumbling down. Because one day the stone will roll in for the last time and all eternity will burst open and they will yield to the rock of ages. And I say, Father, prepare us. Prepare us with hearts that trust you. Grant us the wherewithal to rely. Rely, rely, rely on who you are for us in Jesus Christ. And God, now as we come to your table, wake us up afresh to the realities of the cross that prove better than everything you're in control and you are wise. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.